Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following release represents our first foray into portal community-oriented content. In an attempt to make our sponsors' brief messages as unobtrusive as possible, they've been placed after the first and third answers to your questions. Hello. You found the portal. I think we're going to be doing something interesting today, which is that we're going to start to bring in the portal community into a portal episode. The purpose of this is to show some of the interactions that we've been having with our people, whether it's through Instagram or over our Discord servers that people have set up to allow and facilitate members of the portal community to interact directly with each other. Now, I've been doing a lot of Q&As off the cuff on um, live Instagram chats while I try to get my 10,000 steps in a day. That's been very productive. But my producer, Colin Thompson, has suggested that maybe what we should be doing is AMA-style episodes in which we solicit questions from the audience, perhaps on a restricted topic, and then we actually get the people who write in um, after my producer has gone through the questions that he thinks are the most interesting and go back to those people and allow them to ask the questions directly and to get an off-the-cuff answer that isn't scripted, which is just from the heart, so that people have an understanding that, in fact, the show is being hugely informed by the number of people who are interacting with us directly. As people are taking the concept of the portal into their own lives, I actually wonder whether the podcast will continue to be the leading part of the portal community. We're going to keep doing it, but there are now so many different opportunities for people to interact, uh, whether it's the voice chat rooms, the various projects that people are on, or these uh, Q&As that we've been doing across different sorts of um, platforms, that these opportunities are going to continue to grow as an important part of the portal experience. And in fact, I have a fantasy that at the end of this, I might even be able to remove myself completely from the portal for a period of time and let the community take over as they come to understand what it is that this show is doing for them. Because after all, that is the entire point of doing the show. So ask yourself, what is it that you want to see? And instead of just hanging back, consider sending in questions the next time we solicit them on Twitter or Periscope or wherever we happen to ask the question next. And then if we are able to find your question uh, amongst the, the flurry of activity that comes in, we'll try to contact you so that you can appear either through audio or on video um, and interacting with us directly. And I just wanted to do this in part to say thank you guys for making the show a success. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary from when we began the show at first. And perhaps the biggest part of this experience for me has been finding out what an enormous worldwide community of people are interested in the topic of looking for the portal to get us out of our current frameworks of thinking and to find the door towards a more transcendent future and even a present. So what we're going to do is we're going to start by 
allowing some of the people who responded to our first request for questions to ask their questions. And I'm going to give my off the cuff answers and we'll find out whether that's something that you guys find interesting. So stay tuned and hope you like it. Hey, Eric, my name is Aviv and I'm calling from the Boston area. Could you help resolve the media markets and human malware Mobius band? We are told that the media and social media influence our opinions, but at the same time, we are told that in this day and age, the media is thirsty for our clicks. So in effect, we tell the media what we want and they give it to us. Well, which is it? Are we the masters or are they? The same goes for markets. Markets are great at identifying needs and pricing them, but markets also convince us that we need some really bad things. As an example, universities want to import cheap labor to do research. This is done to maximize research per dollar spent, and this is perfectly rational. Yet you have argued that this is a problem even though the market is doing exactly what it was designed to do. My intuition tells me that human malware seems to be the culprit here, but what exactly is going on? I'll leave that for you to answer. Aviv, you raise a very important topic. This has come up in a bunch of different places. Uh, George Soros, for example, has a famous principle of reflexivity, which he believes that he can convey to almost no economists. And effectively, it is the concept that not only do um, minds move markets, but markets move minds. That is, if you think you know what's going on and you start to see that the market isn't behaving in any way that seems to reflect your preconceived idea, you may change your mind. For example, you thought that the world was falling apart, but the stock market starts uh, gapping upwards. Well, that's very confusing to most people. So there's a way in which you have a two-way interaction that you would expect. Social media is both dictating our tastes and it is trying to figure out our tastes so that it can uh, profit from it, at least the people who run the companies that uh, social media is dominated by. Now, um, what do we do in a situation in which taste formation is not understood? For example, uh, in economic theory, given that all of this is market mediated, we have a very long-standing tradition that tastes are to be treated as given, which I think goes back to Marshall, uh, probably the early part of the 20th century. So we're not allowed to ask, well, why do you prefer X to Y? And uh, what would cause you to change your taste? In fact, once tastes are given, they tend to be fixed in economic theory precisely because the uh, economists didn't know enough math to be able to track taste change. In fact, this is the basis of my research with Pia Milani into uh, gauge theoretic economics. By adding more mathematics, we were able to show that you could continue to compare people's tastes between two different points in time if the tastes were not the same. So we have a big problem because taste formation has, in fact, eluded um, any kind of analytic effort within the economics profession, and we are in a market-mediated situation. I think we have to take this two-way uh, relationship very seriously. Now, John Archibald Wheeler once famously tried to take the mathematics of Einstein's theory of general relativity, and he said, uh, here's how you'd express it. You say that uh, space tells matter how to move, matter tells space how to curve. Well, in some sense, this is exactly what is occurring uh, in the two-way process that you're talking about. That's actually mediated through a single equation rather than two separate equations. 
So you have a very interesting situation. Are there equations? Are, is there new mathematics? Is there a new form of analysis that can actually deal with an interacting nonlinear system in which we are both being influenced by media and we are influencing media in return? And now when you have a really complicated feedback loop like that, can you say anything about whether or not the market will tend towards a positive or a negative social outcome. That is, is the market going to efficiently get us to a better place or is it going to efficiently get us to a place that we don't want to be at all? These are the sorts of questions that have been traditionally punted by the academics. And so I think you may not even understand just how profound a question you've asked. Um, we've been at this for a very long time and it's stunning to us the way in which the economics profession pretends to be uh, in curious about this. There's a paper by two particular authors, uh, both of whom have received the uh, prize that is frequently referred to as the Nobel Prize in Economics, although it technically is not. And these authors are Gary Becker and George Stigler. And they wrote a paper called uh, De Gustibus Non Est Disputandum, and they argued that tastes should be treated as the same for all men and do not vary over time, comparing them to the Rocky Mountains. The reason that paper is so bizarre is, is that the field is terrified of your question. What happens when you ask that question is that the field may in fact collapse. And it required two people at the very highest levels of the economics profession to effectively put a tourniquet on the bleeding that you can expect to stem from asking that question because they didn't have the mathematics or the sophistication to be able to handle it. And furthermore, it may very well lead to a check on the power of economists if that question does not have a positive answer. Maybe markets, in fact, lead us uh, right up to the gates of hell. So um, what the economics profession did was that they put in a very artificial claim, which is that you don't need to, to worry about that because tastes cannot, in fact, be altered. This is positively um, academic nonsense of the worst kind. You'll find this paper in the late 1970s, and I have it on excellent authority from a member of the economics profession affiliated with the Chicago department in which uh, both of these gentlemen worked, that in fact, they did not see economics as a free field so much as as a bulwark against totalitarian Soviet-style communism, given when they were writing. Now, if that's true, it means that we came up with an artificial position in order to make the claim that capitalism was superior to communism. Communism then was defeated, but modern economists don't necessarily even know that some of these claims were inflated specifically as a political bulwark rather than as an intellectual contribution. So you've asked one hell of a question. I don't know whether you'll find that that was one hell of an answer, but um, maybe we should do more on this topic you've raised. And uh, thanks for, for having such a, an incisive uh, look at the situation. Returning sponsor Athletic Greens makes a health juice drink that I find to be extremely interesting because I've learned how to hack it in a way that wasn't even advertised. While everybody else was putting on weight during quarantine, I was using Athletic Greens to slim down and probably have shed about 40 pounds. Here's how it works. I get up in the morning and instead of going to the refrigerator and feeling that I have a need to eat something to get my day going, I instead mix up a glass of Athletic Greens and it keeps me feeling fulfilled and not particularly needing more nourishment. It also contains most of the vitamins and minerals that I'm craving. 
Athletic Greens Powder mixes up into the ultimate daily all-in-one health drink with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that include prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, superfoods, and more, giving your body one-stop shopping to help support all of its various needs. So, whether you're taking steps towards a healthier lifestyle or you're an athlete pushing for better performance, Athletic Greens takes the guesswork out of everyday good health. Why not just try it? Go to athleticgreens.com portal to claim our special offer today. That's 20 free travel packs valued at $79 at athleticgreens.com slash portal with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com slash portal. Do you remember that one time in 2015 that you once searched for something on the internet that you kind of didn't want anyone else to know about? (laughs) Who are we kidding? That situation probably happened five minutes ago. We're constantly searching for information on the internet and it's nobody's business but ours. Yet our ISP somehow has the ability to see everything we do. And it's not sufficient to use incognito mode because our ISP still sees wherever we go on the internet. That's why our friends at ExpressVPN want you to know it does not matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast because ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure server so your ISP can't see the sites you visit and keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available across all your devices. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com portal, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com portal. Expressvpn.com portal to learn more. Hi, it's Seb from the UK, um, at Seb Lawson 11 on Twitter. My question is, similar to some long-form podcasts, do you think it would be possible for mainstream journalism to implement a duality of opinion on a current issue, or at least take time to digest events before printing? Or will the current model not allow a mainstream publication to have an unsexy headline such as, it's more complex than an article written a day later? Similar to shopkeepers putting up a sign saying, back in 15 minutes, the New York Times, for example, might say, with thinking slash Digesting events will report back in a few days. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, what is the penalty for not being fast? Um, we don't know. We know that if you, if you always race into print and you're famous for getting everything wrong, that that probably has a cost unless you do it in an entertaining way. And that's a terrifying idea that you could be wrong in a very entertaining way and nobody would care. Um, if there is a penalty for being wrong, uh, and there is a penalty for being fast, it indicates that there has to be, uh, some sort of a trade-off between them. And I think kind of the problem is, is that the exchange exchange rate favors fast. I think people are also getting bored and fatigued. And I do believe that a lot of what's going on is, is that the legacy media that we're still dependent upon is integrated into our lives in ways that we don't really understand. So for example, a newspaper would typically have had two principal sources of income. It would have subscription income from the people who are choosing to consume and it would have advertising income for the people who uh, are looking to use it as a medium by which to sell their product. In a world in which subscription income is very important, 
you're constantly catering to your readership. However, when that becomes too slight and it's all ad driven, you suddenly change the orientations. The first question has to do in part with the business model. Um, we could disincentivize very quick takes by, for example, strengthening our libel and slander laws and making it very expensive to get things wrong. Um, on the other hand, uh, you could imagine, you know, putting in speed bumps, uh, in digital platforms, everything feels very artificial. But I think what'll happen is we'll start to see bolt-ons, like for example, a scorekeeper as to which, which sources have been the most reliable and which have been the most biased in ways that the scorekeeping is relatively transparent. So one of the problems you might have is that you'll have something uh, like Snopes that will advertise itself as being bias free. And then it appears that it actually isn't bias free. It has its own bias. Um, it might be that instead what you do is you set up an algorithm that looks for things like Russell conjugates. And I've talked about this, who, if, if a particular leader is referred to as a president, a strongman, or a dictator, you you're being told a great deal about the editorial viewpoint at that particular, um, media organ. And so one possibility is that you just have, um, robots that crawl the internet and discern from which Russell conjugation of something like dictator, strongman, president, what is it that every outlet actually believes? And you could easily imagine that as people came to understand the means by which they were being manipulated, um, they would in fact, start to shy away from the things that they felt were not treating them with respect. So then if you rushed in very quickly with your take, uh, there might be some penalty. I guess the great fear that I have is that we're not really interested in the information as much at the moment as what is likely to be a massive redistributive event. And people are in effect jockeying for position to see whether or not we have a revolution and a ton of value shakes free. So think about the idea that maybe we're all becoming pretty disinterested in fairness and objectivity and an understanding of the world because we see that there's a pinata that's being swung at. And at some point uh, that pinata is going to break and there's going to be a mad dash for all of the goodies that fall to the floor. And so people are really positioning themselves not to understand what's going on, but to scoop up as much of what falls out of what is to come as is possible. And that's not a very optimistic perspective, but I think that there are things we could do if we were convinced that we were trying to build the future. And I think that too much of what we're talking about is squabbling over the spoils that have accumulated the past in the past to build the present. And so once we become concerned with the future again, we're going to be much more focused on getting things right. At the moment, we're concerned with the present and the past. And so we're much more concerned to getting things early and getting things powerful so that we might be the ones who benefit when the pinata finally breaks. That's not a very optimistic perspective, but it's how I see it. And I really appreciate the question. My name is Felix Kammerlander. I live in Frankfurt, Germany. My Twitter handle is Felix Kammerlan1.
And here comes my question. Recent attempts to counter the radical left malware simply consist of criticism towards it, which is unlikely to be heard through echo chambering. Which features must a human software update have for it to be sufficiently attractive to establish a pull in a better direction? It's an interesting question. Part of the problem with a lot of the current human cognitive malware that we're seeing, particularly from the Marxist perspective, is that it anticipates its own removal. And so the attempt to remove it creates a huge problem. So I'm a huge fan of not letting it get its first foothold um, rather than say, oh, well, well, let's take all arguments under our open architecture. And then you find out that you've got some sort of a new problem that you can't get rid of. Now, why is this so difficult? Well, there are particular moves that if somebody invokes them, my feeling is, is that you, one should stop talking to that person. For example, um, if your response to finding that something is offensive uh, is to have the person say, wow, you have X fragility, where X is something uh, American fragility, white fragility, male fragility, um, that entire line of argument, if it's allowed, says that certain people do not have the right to be hurt or offended. And therefore, those who use that line of argument have to be ejected from the conversation because it, otherwise it sets up a hierarchy of haves and have nots inside of a conversation about who actually is allowed to have the full spectrum of positions, including talking about um, how their concerns have been, have been hurt or um, infringed upon. I think that when you're looking at these sorts of arguments, you can detail what their behaviors are, namely that they allow one group of people usually to um, profit within the argument at the expense of another because of an asymmetry of what those people are bringing into a conversation. And if we lose the idea of interoperability or the idea that the correctness or incorrectness of, uh, if we lose interoperability or the idea that the correctness or inter, sorry, if we lose interoperability or the idea that the correctness or incorrectness of a particular position uh, is completely decoupled from the characteristics of the person holding that position, Uh, then we're in real trouble because we've lost the ability to actually share experience. And I think that human empathy, for example, is quite substantial so that we can imagine the lives of people um, that are very far away from our own lives. And though that, that capacity to be empathic and to use the imagination allows us to go to the movies, for example, or to lose ourselves in, in a book or a song because many things happen to people um, that haven't happened to us. Listen to the old song, Billy, don't be a hero. And in general, you will not have the experience of either being the woman, uh, asking her, uh, true love not to go to war and come home in a box or Billy who decides that he, uh, he has to go and, and do this thing for glory. You don't have either of those two experiences in most cases, but you're able to lose yourself immersively in the song. I think that that idea that we can actually understand each other, maybe not perfectly, but we can get to very high levels of understanding has been completely lost and is a form of malware um, 
in the situation. So when you see certain sorts of moves, uh, you should know that if you actually accept those moves as legitimate, from that point on, the conversation will almost certainly derange. And you can't actually object to those moves internal to the other person's rule set. In other words, if the idea is that in a conversation, whoever has experienced the most pain becomes the most expert, because the only thing that matters is lived experience and oppression, once you've accepted that that's how the conversation will be scored, you're in a very difficult situation. And there's a point that I'm going to start to make quite a bit, which is illustrated with the difference between two games. So the way I usually phrase it is, imagine that you come upon a beach and you see a very high net with two teams of three and a ball to be uh, exchanged by the two teams over the net. Most of us would assume that we are looking at volleyball and that we would imagine that it's played under standard rules for beach volleyball. But in Southeast Asia, the same equipment and configuration supports a second game called Sipak Tukra, which is effectively a form of volleyball played with the feet in a kind of incredible martial arts, uh, you know, Hong Kong wire act style. It's kind of amazing to watch. What happens when you're in a conversation where you think you recognize what the rules are just from the nature of the conversation? That would be the analog of looking at the net, the ball, and the teams where you're making an inference. I bet this is volleyball. Unfortunately, your conversation is going to be scored under completely different rules. That subtle change has fouled up a huge number of people because if they actually examine the rules, they will realize that they effectively can't win at the conversation, even if their points are correct. So um, the most important thing is to understand what the frame is that you've been handed, who will be doing the scoring of the argument based on what principles. And if you don't share the same sense of what the rules are, my advice to you is get yourself out of the conversation or object to the idea that the wrong rules are being used to score the conversation. And if somebody keeps saying, wow, that's so bigoted, that's so backward, that's so um, paternalistic, that's so uh, unacceptable or problematic, well, okay, that's the best that they're going to be able to do. But it's your problem if you decide to begin in good faith by assuming that you will be able to self-referee the game much the way in the United States touch football or a pickup game of basketball would be self-refereed. In that case, everybody's more interested in the game. You don't have endorsement deals on the line. Uh, it would be ruined if you couldn't trust the other players to adjudicate you know, whether or not uh, somebody got fouled uh, on a shot or there was some kind of a penalty on the play. Now, good sportsmanship is what allows us to be able to reliably find a pickup game with people we don't know. It's very important that we have a culture that anticipates what a discussion is in good faith. As people start to realize that good faith discussions will not aid their point, they will attempt to look like they're engaging in good faith, but will substitute a second set of rules. And so once you detect that that second set of rules has been substituted, uh, it's time to either eject the other people from the conversation, to leave yourself, to note that you don't agree with the scoring of the conversation that you will be using some set of rules. And, you know, I think about the evolution of, let's say, Queensbury rules for fighting. Uh, it's not true that in combat sport, 
everything is all out. You know, eye gouging or small digit manipulation is usually um, frowned upon. Of course, there were contests, for example, in Thailand, where the Muay Thai actors would wrap their knuckles in plaster and uh, liberally salt them with broken glass to do maximal damage for the pleasure of onlookers. Um, if you find yourself in such a, a situation expecting a boxing match, which is in general my impression of what it's like to argue with the radical left, uh, you better either be prepared to do something equally as disturbing, which will probably debase your morality, or get the hell out of the ring. And uh, I would highly recommend the latter, noting a protest that this isn't boxing, this is madness. And if somebody tells you this is Sparta, then you know exactly where you are. Here's a topical question. What do millions of Americans and three U.S. presidents have in common? If you answer they're extremely nervous about Ghislaine Maxwell being taken into custody, that is incorrect. Only two U.S. presidents have that as a fear. In fact, the real answer was that they all agree that bowl and branch sheets are the softest and most comfortable pure organic cotton sheets on earth. I love my bowl and branch sheets because they sleep like the sheets in the best hotels I've ever stayed at. Plus, I know that bowl and branch cotton is rain-fed, pesticide-free, and carries the highest organic certification. Plus, since they sell direct to you, what they're doing is cutting out the middleman, which is the department store, which adds a huge markup. Thus, you're getting the top quality sheets that you can possibly buy for a fraction of the price. And right now, you can get $50 off any sheet set at BolandBranch.com if you use promo code PORTAL. That's spelled B-O-L-L and Branch.com using promo code PORTAL for $50 off. So go to BolandBranch.com using promo code PORTAL to get your sheets today. Restrictions may apply, so see BolandBranch.com for details. Be honest. Do you see yourself as a book person in danger of becoming a phone person or electronics person? If so, returning sponsor Blinkist is the company that's probably done the most to figure out how to keep book people book people in the modern era. Here's how Blinkist does it. They have a team of readers and writers who comb all of the most important nonfiction titles and summarize them into 15-minute units called Blinks that can be either read or listened to as audio. What I love about Blinkist is that these Blinks allow me to figure out what I want to invest in, and when my time is at a premium, it means that I can make much more judicious decisions. Plus, if I decide not to read something, I at least have an idea of what the book is about if people start discussing it. Plus, now Blinkist gives you a library with full-length nonfiction audiobooks at a special discounted price. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. If you'll go to Blinkist.com portal, you can start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership with up to 65% off audiobooks, which are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com portal to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com portal. Hey, Eric. My name's Joe Constantino. I'm a Bay Area native, but I'm calling in from Los Angeles, California at the moment. My Twitter handle is Joe underscore Constantino, but the last O is actually a zero. Anyway, here's my question. I wanted to extend an idea that you and Peter Thiel put forward in your first episode of The Portal, the idea being growth as a mitigation to conflict. In Walter Scheidel's book, The Great Leveler, Scheidel asserts economic inequality as something that is built into all societies. And the only events that level inequality are state failure, mass mobilization warfare, pandemic, and revolution. In the first chapter of his book, 
Schiedel describes the difference between relative and absolute inequality. The idea is simple. Let's say in a society, the top 1% of earners make $100,000 and the bottom 1% make $10,000. Now we introduce growth and everybody becomes twice as rich. Relative inequality hasn't changed. The top 1% is still 10 times richer than the bottom 1%. But now, absolute inequality has doubled. It seems that growth inevitably leads to exponentially larger absolute inequality. If you accept Schiedel's premise, then exponentially growing inequality will eventually lead to a leveling event, three of which certainly involve violence, state failure, pandemic, and revolution. Interestingly, I think we are experiencing these three events in the present moment. Do you agree with this analysis, which said more simply, states that growth leads to increased inequality, which leads to a leveling event characterized by violence? If yes, how do you reconcile this with Peter's premise of growth as a mitigation to violence? Thanks again, and I really appreciate everything you're doing with the portal. All the best. Well, Joe, I think you're bringing up an excellent question. Uh, Rephrase slightly, and I don't know whether you're going to accept the rephrasing. Um, Are we both dependent on growth to stop violence as well as being um, consigned to violence by growth? Well, let's put it this way. Whatever Whatever double bind we might be in, we can at least attempt to minimize the loss to needless violence. So in other words, there might be a a level of essential violence of one form or another that we can't get rid of. I mean, certainly there's no shortage of uh, examples in nature where violence is baked into a species, Um, particularly, for example, in mating contests. uh, How many how many four-legged mammals, uh, you know, have large antlers as weaponry for contesting for mates. So very often violence is an expected part of a species condition, but you can talk about compensated and uncompensated violence and violence minimization. So it's very important not to fantasize about a world without violence, um, because nobody's ever figured out how to devise such a world. It's not even clear that that would be a positive thing. You can talk about monopolizing violence, which is Weber's theory of the state. You can talk about um, trying to shift from physical violence towards financial violence or digital violence or anything to reduce or abate the harm that comes from essential violence that cannot be gotten rid of. Now, if I understand correctly, we have a situation in which a growing world might be a world that would accentuate inequality and therefore resentment. But if we don't have growth, people are not optimistic about the future and they'll start to fight over whatever is present in the here and the now. One thing we've learned is various techniques for either avoiding um, violence due to, let's say, taxation schemes or concepts of patriotism where people are willing to sacrifice for a national project that excites them. Think about the number of people who went through the sixties who, when they, when asked about like in, inside of the United States, what they think of their country, they say, well, we put a man on the moon. 
It was viewed as a communal achievement. And so even people who had never achieved anything remotely like uh, a great scientific breakthrough individually or great innovation or invention uh, were able to participate in something that made them feel positive. Remember that that putting a man on a moon on the moon had to do with tax dollars. It was also obviously a demonstration to our chief geopolitical rival, the Soviet Union, of our capabilities, because there are lots of things that you can put on top of a rocket other than uh, a few guys to take pictures on a foreign orb. Um, I think that in general, without national projects that we feel great about, it's very tough to say, well, what are you getting out of your country? What If it has a high tax rate, particularly a high marginal tax rate, uh, what is that? What is that buying you? And here's a question. Do the rich really understand why they might want a high marginal tax rate? I think that's a very weird question for most rich people. Obviously, they would say, I don't want a high marginal tax rate, and they individually should not. But what if they were told, let's say, you know, we don't know how to prevent violence. And if we do a good job of a reasonable, although somewhat high marginal tax rates on top earners, we can probably avoid the revolution that may in fact threaten your ability not only to earn, but to um, be unmolested by civil unrest in the future. It's a very upsetting thing for people to think about who have um, 10 or 11 figures worth of wealth. However, it may be that a highly unequal society is not a stable society. So I'm not really sure whether we've ever had deep conversations about the essential violence that may be embedded within human organization and what the very powerful and very wealthy need to fear about becoming ever more unequal. Because in fact, um, I have no doubt that it would have been very hard to have a conversation with Marie Antoinette and King Louis about their long-term interests. I don't think their long-term interests were served in a world in which they were viewed as presiding over an incredibly unequal state. And I don't know how to begin the conversation with the wealthiest families that what they think may be um, their, in their best interest with respect to wealth conservation. They might, in fact, be far better served by making sure that the society on which they, their success rests is a stable one. So these are fascinating and interesting questions. I don't know whether that fully answers it, but I would say that you want to minimize the violence that might be necessary in the system between your two possible alternatives. And you should also try to get the very wealthy on board and get them to understand exactly why they don't want to become too wealthy and why that should best be shared. And if you want to see what can happen, take a look at what happened to the Soviet Union Take a look at what happened to communist China. Take a look at what happened to any of these societies that experienced a very violent communist revolution. Hi, Eric. This is Steve calling from Tacoma, Washington. My social handle is at Steve Wanderer. My question for you, if the current political age is coming to an end, and by that I mean Reaganism, neoliberalism, and third-way Democrats, what do you believe needs to die and what should take its place? What is a 40 to 50 year theory for the American dream that can meet the challenges of our times 
and that most people could embrace? What shared myth can take us towards something creative? Thank you for taking my question. Oh, that's easy. I mean, obviously, capitalism and communism both have to die. You need to hybridize it into something which captures the essence of what capitalism did best, which was to provide for freedom. You have to figure out something short of communism uh, that provides for people on the basis of being a soul rather than a pair of hands so that we can't have your entire value resting on whether or not jobs will continue to exist as the economy continues to transform. The new economic system has to take much more into account the issue of public goods and services because the market will not be able to associate the proper price to the value provided. So you should expect that we are going to have to have hyper-capitalism because people will have to be allowed to sort of invent in an unfettered environment because it's gotten very difficult and the individuals uh, on whom we depend uh, are really outliers. They're determined by very fat tails, power laws, kurtosis, various things that people don't think about. So when you have an Elon Musk, for example, you probably need to give him a wide berth in order to create as much value as possible, but then you probably need hyper-socialism to go with hyper-capitalism. And the idea there is that our traditional claim in a capitalist economy is simply through our labor. Um, and in fact, we have two claims. We have one claim as a soul and one claim as a set of hands or a brain, which is what do we, what do we provide and what do we need? Um, we are going to have to experiment with something like universal basic income to deal with the fact that technology is going to obviate many occupations that we would think of as providing for dignity as well as um, an ability to share in the wealth created. On the other hand, if we cannibalize the entire thing by talking in nonsensical terms in order to get justice, if you will, we are going to keep the people who would be able to innovate from even being able to think or function because so much of this is intellectual rot that may be, in fact, um, attempting to achieve a positive social outcome, which is to make sure that all souls are provided for. So we're going to have to be more honest that there are certain people who are just remarkable and there are others of us who are going to provide things that the market can't see. So for example, when musicians uh, watched vinyl turn into uh, CDs, turn into MP3s, by the time a song could be recorded as an MP3, there was no ability to keep that from spreading too broadly. So you had something become a public good that was once a private good and musicians were no longer able to make the same kind of money from record sales. That kind of behavior is going to uh, occur again and again because effectively what the internet and computers are doing is they're taking tangible physical objects and they're virtualizing them. When they become virtualized, they become a public good. When they become a public good, they sit in the blind spot of the markets constituting market failure. It's a very serious state of affairs. And so whatever this new thing is, it's not going to be capitalism. It's not going to be socialism. Um, we're probably going to need to start talking about escape um, because I don't think that we can afford to run one single correlated experiment. What globalization has done is it has created a situation with our increasing technological abilities so that a problem anywhere in the world can spread everywhere. You could look at COVID. You could look at the radiation that came off of 
let's say Chernobyl or Fukushima, you could look at the danger that we were in with Deepwater Horizon. Uh, roughly speaking, we are not stewards of this planet who know what to do with all the power we have. Every mistake that we have can go global the way COVID has gone global. And um, we're probably going to have to figure out how to get off this planet. There are various ways to think about that, but they all sound insane. If I were to tell you that we're going to upload, that would seem nonsensical to me. If I could tell you that we have to become uh, a society spread out between the moon, Mars, and the earth, as Elon would, might have it, I would say that's not enough diversification. And quite honestly, it's very unlikely that you're going to terraform Mars. Um, my own bet is that we have to break the laws of physics because rockets aren't going to be the way that we are going to spread out into the, into the solar system, beyond the solar system, into the galaxies. But who knows whether that's even possible. Are we going to upload? Are we going to re reboot from tardigrades? Everything sounds insane, but you want to know the weird part about it. The thing that sounds craziest is imagining that we're going to be able to continue doing what we've been doing and it's going to work for the next 2000 years. I think you can tell from, um, the power of a hydrogen device, that that's not going to happen. I recently was exploring virtual reality inside of Oculus Quest. And I had the idea that after I called for a return to very limited above ground nuclear testing on Ben Shapiro's program, I wanted to experience what it would be like to stand near a nuclear test and found a simulator in VR. And let me tell you something we really need to have everybody go through this experience because everyone who thinks that we're going to have a little bit of revolution or we're going to have a little bit of global conflict doesn't realize that it's, it's almost an unbelievable occurrence that since 1952, we haven't had, um, a hydrogen device, a fusion device exploded, um, in, in combat. So I think we're in a, we're in a most unusual situation and, uh, it's anyone's guess as to whether or not we can get out of it. Um, but I think, you know, there's no other option other than to try. And so everybody should pick his or her own, uh, best way of thinking about how we avoid this fate and, uh, you know, spread out and let a thousand flowers bloom. Hi, this is Sean from Washington, D.C. Eric, regarding economics, you have very thought-provoking opinions. For example, you're the only person I've heard voicing skepticism of high-skilled immigration. I wonder why this is. You have also voiced concern about capitalism. Given the complexity of economics and the wide-ranging disagreements among experts, how can a layperson get a handle on how to think about these issues to form a coherent worldview? Thanks. I really appreciate the question. Thanks very much for asking it, Sean. It's an interesting problem because I really believe, as I've said before, that economics is in a very unusual position for a modern field. And maybe this is going to happen to more fields, but it happened to economics in modern times in a very brutal and dangerous way. What I've said is, is that there was probably a time when you had chemists and alchemists in the same department or astronomers and astrologers. And every modern economics department represents a fusion of two separate traditions, a bullshit tradition that attempts to rationalize power and an analytic tradition that attempts to understand the world as we, as we have it. 
in the case of my opinions, one of the things that happened is I did not go through a standard economics department. I went to working in the field directly without any um, education or background, except from what I learned from my wife. Um, that was a situation which led me to very different conclusions. In the case of high-skilled immigration, the reason that you don't hear almost anyone crit critiquing high-skilled immigration is, is that we've, we've put a very dangerous um, piece of malware into our collective understanding, which is that anyone who opposes immigration can only do so because they hate foreigners, which is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Immigration is a very complex phenomenon. It creates all sorts of different effects. There are good reasons to be for it. There are good reasons to be against it, bad reasons to be for it, bad reasons to be against it. So the first thing you have to understand is that we have to turn this around. How insane is it that there, in general, is not understood to be a position which I have termed xenophilic restrictionism, where you're fascinated by foreign cultures. You probably cook in different idioms. You learn foreign languages. You travel all over the world. You have friends from all different backgrounds. And yet you're a restrictionist because you're very concerned about certain economic issues. You don't want your vote diluted. Um, and you have an idea that your country has a national character that makes it interesting, just as you wish to visit other countries that have their own national characters. And you want to be thoughtful about how immigration changes and transforms your particular home society. So the first thing that's insane, I mean, just completely insane, is that xenophilic restrictionism is denied by our media by there is no coverage of it. Try to find an article uh, in which people are given the option to say, I both find the world's cultures fascinating and very attractive, and I don't want to adopt every single person from every other country and bring them to my own home country and home labor market. The next part of it is that there's a very simple story called the best and the brightest story. And uh, just imagine, for example, that we start playing the stars and stripes forever uh, in the background and you see a picture of a waving American flag uh, and somebody starts to speak, you know, saying, America has always welcomed the immigrant. Some of our largest companies, our biggest employers that have delivered us vaccines and untold wonders were in fact founded by immigrants. Do we wish to cut off the supply of talent and ambition, people flocking to our shores, or do we wish to welcome them with a giant golden uh, welcome mat, letting people know we are open for business, send us your best and your brightest? So as we start to hear this patriotic appeal, uh, you know, naturally we, we stand at attention to the flag, our hand goes over our heart, we ask ourselves, is this not the best uh, example of uh, Emma Lazarus's poem that sits at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Okay, well, cut all that out. That's not how immigration works. That is an attempt to get you not to think about the various positive and negative effects. What are the rights issues that are raised by uh, immigration? In particular, with high-skilled immigration, people love to say, look, I love high-skilled immigration because they think it's a very small market. They think that it gets us the best and the brightest. They think uh, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with labor markets that don't really make sense. For example, the number of companies that are founded by immigrants would undoubtedly change uh, if we had a more restrictive policy. But one of the things is that a lot more companies would be founded by Americans that wouldn't be founded by immigrants because this would be a much more attractive field to enter, let's say a technological field or a scientific field.
It doesn't take into account the way in which the wage mechanism alleviates labor shortages. It doesn't take into account the fact that changing our immigration structure would probably decrease inequality and bring lots of minorities and females and, and less represented groups into the workforce. There's no such thing as a labor shortage uh, of long term in a market economy, right? Because the wage level just rises to the to the appropriate point at which you can attract the labor you need. I've talked before about having a Steinway shortage in my in my house. Uh, it's not that I can't afford a Steinway, it's just that I have not chosen to purchase one. So when somebody tells you that they have a terrible labor shortage, they're telling you I'm too cheap to pay the market price of labor. The whole thing makes actually no sense. But the reason that you don't find other people uh, talking about a a problem with high-skilled immigration is, first of all, that we have a hidden history that uh, it was, in fact, largely determined by the National Science Foundation, not the National Academy of Sciences, which who... Uh, it was largely determined by the National Science Foundation, the National Academy of Sciences, who, unknown to us, effectively conspired inside of something called the Government University Industry Research Roundtable and the Policy Research and Analysis a division of NSF to, to decrease the wages of what I think of as being the top labor force in the world because the American educational system is quite heterogeneous. We have terrible schools and we have the world's best schools. And in fact, we're not getting the most innovative people anymore because we've really given up on that. And what we hear is the best and the brightest is in general, a very competent, pliant labor force that is not particularly empowered to make bold decisions. Try to imagine that you're on an H-1B visa inside of the United States and you need to tell your employer that uh, he or she's an idiot. You're not gonna be in a position to do that because you're tethered to them because the H-1B doesn't actually even allow you to uh, listen to wage signals from other employers. It's effectively a tethering device to make sure that you are wedded to the person who employed you. Well, it's not quite slave labor, but it's certainly not free labor either. So the reason you're hearing this from me and me alone is, is that I know where this came from and I know what it was intended to do. And I'm emboldened by the fact that I know why they erected it, which was to destroy the power of scientists and engineers to be able to bargain for higher wages, uh, better benefits and more rights. And as a result, the reason that they don't come after me and I've been relatively unmolested um, is that they don't want the story getting out. So we sit here kind of uh, looking to see who's going to blink first. And the second they come after me and they call me a xenophobe, uh, I'm going to tell the actual full story about how they conspired to destroy their own labor market for the very people that they were supposed to promote and protect. With respect to capitalism, um, I'm a huge fan of what capitalism did. And what I'm concerned about is that people don't realize that capitalism has a different future than it, it has a past. Uh, it was absolutely the most powerful idea in the 19th and 20th centuries because it created so much wealth, it lifted so many people out, out of poverty. But it has various problems. It doesn't incorporate all of the negative externalities. So, for example, the, the price of a gallon of uh, petrol or gasoline almost certainly doesn't include all of the costs of belching the waste product into the atmosphere or the despoiling of the environment that was needed to go after that oil. Um, you have all sorts of situations where it doesn't deal well with public goods and services. And those are things that uh, are increasingly 
created by technology from what were private goods and services. I've talked about that elsewhere. So capitalism may have been uh, tied to a particular place in time. And people get emotionally invested because they think that it's always going to function the way that it did function. I've called this problem the problem of anthropic capitalism. That is, that capitalism was tied to a particular time and place in history, and it's now time to move on to the next thing. And I've talked a bunch about the idea of what happens when you graduate from high school, but you keep hanging around year after year. You know fewer and fewer of the people, and it becomes more inappropriate that you aren't moving on with your life. In part, I think that that's what we have. We have a failure to launch our post-capitalist society. So you're watching capitalism come unraveled. And as I've said before, uh, we thought that capitalism and communism were, in fact, rivals. But I, I've likened them to Thelma and Louise uh, in the final scene from that film. It doesn't really matter uh, who hits the ground first. But both capitalism and communism are intrinsically unsustainable. And the fact is, we don't know what that leaves us with except to invent the future. That's what Adam Smith had to do. That's what uh, we did with uh, Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, we have to invent the future. And so I don't know why our economists and our best thinkers aren't realizing that they're probably looking at a system on its last legs we're going to have to take what worked from capitalism that continues to work, and we're going to have to fuse it to what we now know about uh, markets and the human condition. It's a very tall order, and it's scary, but I don't understand why we think that the answers are going to be in the past and not things that we're going to have to invent for ourselves in the future if we want to have a long-term um, perspective on our own viability.